Guardian listeners get the latest news, but they can also create it. With our sponsor Squarespace, you can easily create an elegant website for your personal brand, online store, business, personal portfolio, or blog. Whoever you are, Squarespace's simple tools and elegant designs make your ideas newsworthy and accessible to any audience. Try it at squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. The Guardian Books Podcast with Claire Armistead. Is there such a thing as truth when you're writing about real lives? It's an age-old question, as one of the subjects of this podcast would undoubtedly tell you. The 17th century writer John Aubrey pretty much invented life writing with his brief lives of famous contemporaries, such as the physicist Isaac Newton, the architect Christopher Wren, and the poet and pamphleteer John Milton. Now he, in turn, has been given a voice in a thrillingly original biography. I fear that I should not have put my book of lives, concerning so many great persons still living, into even Mr. Wood's hands. I ought to castigate and castrate some of the things in it that are too true and biting and cast them aside somewhere at the end of the book to be referred to in an occult and secret way, e.g. 125 to be 521 or done retrograde. I think it will be a long time before I get to Oxford again. We'll have more of John Aubrey's anxieties later, but first we've invited in two modern practitioners of the ambivalent art. Karlovic Nusgaard's six-volume My Struggle is so ambivalent that though it follows his own life, it hasn't been classified as autobiography at all, but as fiction. The arrival in English of the fourth volume, Dancing in the Dark, dealing with his teenage years, has been one of the events of this publishing spring, as those fortunate enough to get places at one of his few live appearances will tell you. Alexandra Fuller's Leaving Before the Rains Come is the third book she's written featuring her family of colonial eccentrics scratching out a life in Africa. I started by asking Alexandra about her autobiographical project and where the story of her family picked up from in this latest instalment. So Alexandra, you, this is your third volume of autobiography and your first was Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight, which long-time readers of The Guardian will know because it was very nearly won the Guardian First Book Prize back in 2002. Your family is still holed up in Africa in varying states of inebriation. <laughs> that seems fair enough. I think the thing that was so interesting about Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight was, I, was completely unintentional. I was trying to write novels and I wrote 10 wildly unsuccessful novels, was fired by my agent who said, you know, you might have a little bit of talent, but you don't have a story. And I thought, no, I do. I've, I've got a fabulous story. And, and so really, Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight was written out of the incredible homesickness I felt. I'd by then moved to the States from Zambia and a love letter to my mother, which is a, such a complicated relationship. And she's such a sort of wonderful woman. But um, one of the things I sort of say about her is she's an amazing parent with absolutely no parenting skills. Um, and so really it was a, is a book about raising oneself in war, in wartime, during you know what was then the Rhodesian Civil War. Um, and the fact that there was such a, a difference, I think. You know, we were an incredibly close family, as I think families get when you're tied together by trauma. I mean, really welded together, I think, by the trauma of war. 
um, and the fact that my mother lost three of her children. Um, one of one of whose death was hauntingly you've always felt was your fault to some extent. Absolutely my fault. I was um, taking care of her. Um, I was nine and she was two and she drowned under my watch. And that I think has been the sort of burning thread that's I think carried all my art forward. What happens when you stop paying attention? Um, and so I think after that I started to pay, you know, one might say obsessive attention to my life, um, which has led to all these memoirs. Carl, you you um, you you're on. This is the fourth book that's been published in the UK. You have written six yeah. volumes of fiction, stroke, autobiography. Where does one begin and the other end? I have no idea. I, I consider myself as a novelist and I couldn't see any difference in writing these books than more fictional novels because it's it's not the story that's in the center of the attention for me. It's, um, it's something completely different. It's kind of a search for something um, basically meaning or, or, or a lot of things, but that's the project. It's not a retelling, a recapitulation of a life. It's the life is uh, the backdrop of a, of a search in a way. So that's why I call it a novel. And it is really, your story seemed, um, I mean, very, very dramatic. It's war and it's death and it's, but, but my story is, it's really, it's nothing. The story, you know, it's very, very common, very, very ordinary. It's like, it's like an, an completely ordinary life. One of the things that both these have in common, both of you have in common, is, is alcohol in your families. I mean, your father, Carl, drank himself to death. Yeah. Although we don't see that in this particular book, you're 18 and just starting out on your adult life. But we yeah. see the beginnings of him becoming a, a terminal alcoholic. Your, your parents, Alexandra, aren't terminal alcoholics. They're still living with their sundowners. <laughs> Well, you know, I think that for me, in a way, alcohol provided a comic relief. And it's sort of awful to say that because it really was, I think, um, I think one of the things that was so clear to me being raised in Rhodesia, you had 100,000 white people sort of trying to hold on to power that really belonged to 6 million people. This incredible racism, the oppression. And I think when you've set yourself up to be the oppressors on the absolutely unearned merit of simply being white you have to drink an enormous amount to keep that fiction alive in your own head and I think there is this sense that there's a kind of wrongness that there's this terrible pain I think that you know alcohol is a very common way that people deal with that in southern Africa but the way that I decided to take it on was the more amusing aspects of being with people who are sort of permanently drunk and I've written somewhere that that, you know, we never made a decision sober. It was like Herodotus said of the Persians. They, every major decision they make, they made drunk, and then they reassessed their decision the next morning when they had a hangover. And if they still agreed that it was a good idea when they were hungover, then they went ahead and did whatever it was. And in that way, we sort of had these very erratic lives because our decisions were made really under the influence. <laughs> One thing that this raises, and it's, again, for both of you, is is particularly... Carl, in your book, when you were 18, you, you had a lot of memory lapses. I mean, you had blackouts, proper alcoholic blackouts. Yeah. So a lot of what you're recalling, you presumably don't directly remember. No, that's true. How did you find, fish up what happened to you, what you, the feelings were around these periods of blackout? 
a lot of the things I'm writing, I, I keep forgetting. Uh, it's like I'm in another, you know, state of mind when I'm writing. So uh, almost like it's unconscious. But but of course, the blackout things you pick up bits and pieces from people who were there and and people you know and and the whole atmosphere of, of the place. But there's a lot of things I really don't remember at all. And do you have that, or, or are you much more abstemious than the rest of your family? No, I'm not abstemious, but I think the thing is is that I'm writing so much about my childhood, um, which I was sober foremost of. And the not in this book. In this <laughs> book, you're an adult, aren't you? Yes. But I'm so informed by, you know, my childhood. And so much of the... You know, this book really is not so much a book about a marriage and, and, and that connection, so much as an absolutely... Um, my first love, which was land, which was Zimbabwe, Zambia, and the horrible, my big sort of horrible shock of realizing at 18, being informed by my parents that I was in no way, I wasn't Zambian, I wasn't Zimbabwean, I was English. I didn't feel at all English. And so, so much of this book really is about identity. How do you identify yourself when your entire life until 18, you've thought you're one thing and actually by virtue of a passport, you're another thing altogether. And so, you know, people will say, well, how do you remember your childhood so vividly? Or how do you remember these moments so vividly? But the one thing I think that war does for you and having parents who feel sort of on the verge of being out of control all of the time is it makes of you a very sharp observer. You're watching constantly for your own safety. And then to have your whole identity sort of stripped from you, I think makes of you an even keener observer. There was no safe place for me to lean back into and say, I am Zambian, I am these things, then what are you? And so I think there was a real sort of sharpness of memory. And, and one of the interesting things that happens is as you sort of write, other memories are triggered by the little memories that you do dig up. And the details, you know, the fabric of your life, I think, comes to the fore, particularly because I'm writing in the States about Zambia. There's this distance that gives me a great longing for it. And you, you presumably are doing that as well. You're unpicking, building your way from detail to detail, Carl, in this, yeah. in this, this alcohol-soaked <laughs> late teenage era. Yeah. No, it's something I discovered when I wrote about childhood. It's exactly what you describe here. It's the fabric, it's, it's the details, it's the, the feelings and the smells and, and the way the world looked. I mean, it's very different to be nine years and to be 49. I mean, it's... it's basically two di completely different worlds and uh, when you're writing you can kind of enter that world and I did the same with this book which basically is um, 17, 18, 19 around there and it's very different from the childhood but it still is the same it's possible to enter those worlds inside of you but my only method is through writing and it is like it comes to life and it is like you became this stupid teenager, right? The course you've plotted through these novels is, is, it's not a biographical linearity, is it? You've gone, you started with the death of your father, then you went to your first marriage, yeah. then you went back to your early boyhood, yeah. and now you've arrived at, at 18 or 19. Yeah, no, in this part is kind of a chronology in it, after the two first books, then it's childhood, and then it's teenage years, and then it's next is a student novel. But it's they're very different in tone, very different in mode. And I'm very interested in those kind of things, you know. Yes, it has to do with identity and it has to do with 
changes through your life and, and that everything changed through your life, but you still have a sense of being you and you still have a sense of that you are the one you are, right? You draw a picture of yourself as a sort of comic buffoon in a way, don't you? You're absolutely yeah. obsessed with sex. Yeah. You, have pro- you, you haven't actually had it. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you spend sort of 550 pages trying to get there. Yeah. And that is, in a way, you could say that's the narrative arc of the novel. Is will, yeah, will but it's or the narrative arc of being a teenager as well. I mean, that's, that's, that's really a powerful you know, force in the life. It's uh, everything in my life at that point was centered around that, that fact that I didn't have, you know, I had sex. And it became, you know, um, became many things, but also very scary, you know. I, di- I didn't, in the end, didn't know if I dared to do it, you know. And so it's so embarrassing and so everything is so on the edge in that matter. And it's something I never, you know, talked about that to anyone at that time, of course. And I don't know if other people did have it like that, but it was so, you know, such a great topic to write about because it is such a strong <laughs> narrative force in it and i think it's basically is you know true it, 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 that's the comic thing you know that's the comic it is it is like almost like slapstick yeah. say oh my god there he is again yeah. he's had another nocturnal emission as yeah. it is in your tr- english translation oh, <laughs> yeah. um, but you but you're also you break taboos in it quite a lot so you sort of have a erotic feelings for a 13 year old schoolgirl. yeah and you, there is one case where there is a snog at a, at a party with one of your charges. Yeah. How how is that for you? Is that is that something that was greeted with horror in in Norway, or was that te- did people take it in its stride? I really don't know. I, I I stayed away from everything that happened in Norway when these books came out. You know, I did write about this the subject: a uh, school teacher falling in love with uh, a thirteen-year-old girl. And um, that was your first novel. That was, was on my that first subject. novel, and they, it was even a sexual relationship. And I remember writing that. I thought, "Can I write this? Is that possible? Should I do it?" You know, it was a lot of moral things, and I was very, very afraid when the book was out. You know, it's speculative and and so on. But then nothing, nothing, not a voice was heard about this subject. Th- that was because the book was so beautifully written. It was such. It was literature. And I desperately wanted to get away from that in this book. You know, I didn't want it like that. I wanted it much truer and, and much more. It, it, it was true. I had those kind of feelings and I shouldn't, you know. Which and, most and teachers probably do. I know that's the point. Yeah, but it's very hard to admit it and to talk about it. And mm. But I still couldn't get there, you know. So in book six, I tried to kind of evaluate book four and, and, and ask myself, well, how how come I couldn't write it to to the end? But it's that's one of the hardest things. And, and uh, the girl who you you obviously change her name, but this is yeah. a very small community, and she yeah. recognised herself, or they, her, the group of friends recognised themselves in your writing. Yeah, of course they did. And came and contacted you about it. How was that? Uh, it was shocking. Uh, they did that after the first novel, which was a fictional novel, and they contacted me and, and wanted to see me, and we they. They were great. They were like, they thought it was fun. And uh, like, you know, it's like someone comes there to their little community, sees them, describes them in a whole novel. They took it on the best way. They they found it exciting. But then when this book came out um, many years later, there was, um, I 
wrote it under pseudonyms. I had different names on the on the plays, but that was in a newspaper the first day I heard, you know, that this is this is the society he's writing about. Or these are the people and there were interviews with the people. Uh, they had T shirts with I'm not, you know, and then the name of of that girl. Um <laughs> How about you, Alexandra? You write very frankly about other people, don't you? Um, uh, uh, what have been the repercussions for you of, of putting people into your work like this? I love what Carl said. I think because everyone has a secret life that it is, it's terrifying to put it on the page. But you realize once you've done it, the more personal you are, the more universal the subject matter happens. People recognize themselves in it. My mother was furious with the first book because she really, I mean, she wanted a writer in the family. She actually wanted to write her own biography because she thought she was so fabulous, but she was too lazy to do it. So when she was pregnant with my older sister, she read Vanessa the entire works of Shakespeare in the womb in the hope that Vanessa would just come <laughs> out and be a sort of literary genius. And the upshot is Vanessa's functionally, willfully illiterate. She refuses to read or write, or, or in fact, she won't even read my books. Um, my mother was furious. She said, well, you paint me in such a sort of awful light. And, you know, I'm, I'm much more than that. Um, and so I actually interviewed my mother for the, for the second memoir. Um, and, and in that way, the book's a lot more fun because it's her take, which feels like complete fiction to me. I mean, she sort of paints Kenya and all its glory as if the ma-ma wasn't happening. And I act as a kind of Greek chorus in that book to say, well, you know, and historically, let's put this in context. Um, and then, you know, I think what tends to happen is that, you know, that if you write about people enough, they get kind of used to it. And my mother's not quite pleased. I, I think she's a huge fan of Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight. She's got this huge fan club and she really lives up to it. And sometimes she'll say the most appalling, atrocious things. And then there's a bit of a pause and she looks at me sideways as if to say, you know, I hope you're taking notes. This book was very different because in it there is my my ex-husband. Um, and I did not feel like I could f violate you know, the the privilege of 20 years of intimacy by by writing about him candidly. So in a way, he's a sort of cipher. I write him as I saw him ideally when I was, you know, in my early 20s. And I met him as this sort of adventuring, romantic rescuer, really. And he stays very much in that sphere in this in this book. The way that I've written about my husband, he doesn't feel exposed because he really isn't in there in any particular way. I mean, this is a book about myself and possession, being possessed by land and loving land that didn't, couldn't, wouldn't love me back. As Spinoza says, you can love someone passionately, but that doesn't require that that thing love you back, not even God. Do you have these, these inhibitions, Carl? I mean, you, you've written very candidly about what it was like to be the father of young children. Yeah. And how you didn't want joy because joy was actually boring, even though you had to admit that it did exist in parenting. Yeah. Do you, would you see that as a failure of narrative to have these taboo areas? No, you have to do it. I mean, you, if you are writing, I mean, completely honestly about uh, everybody around you, you are not human. You can't do it. If you do it, you are <laughs> inhuman. You have to, you know, to, to be very careful. My mother's reaction was, was that she was there was a reduction. She, you know, she was so little there, little pr present there, and and that felt very very tough and very hard. I felt that I could feel that you were holding back on your mother. Yeah. And then we we were do, having a talk last night, and you said, "Well, she's still alive," and yeah. I thought that was very interesting. Whereas your father is open yeah. season because he's dead. Yeah. 
it's a big big difference of course but it still is uh, I have a very different relationship to my mother and to my father but I yeah it kept a lot of things back of course and the most problematic things is to write about your own children but I think the worst thing for, for them they haven't read it they're too young the worst thing for them will not be that they are mentioned in the book because they are just children and but that will be you know they will discover that our family story are revealed and everybody you know knows it and can have access to it and it's like an invasion I, I, prob- I will guess when they are a teenager and that's that's going to be difficult I know I heard someone say and I've heard this over and over Pico Ayo said it most recently and most beautifully that w- when you're in the process of writing I mean the thing that you have to bring to your writing is compassion is love even if you're writing about things that are so difficult and sticky and maybe awkward and that you know that there's going to be a casualty but that you hope that those casualties are outweighed by by what the book brings to light that if we all stay in our secret you know self-contained straight jackets of pretense that everything's great then i think there's a real way in which there's an, an enormous amount of self-damage. And the job of the writer isn't to put everyone to sleep. That's the job of the anesthesiologist. The job of the writer is to wake everybody up. That being said, as you know, as Carl says, I mean, I don't know how your process is. My process is to write everything and then take almost everything out. But the, tr- the shards of those truths remains in the book. But the, some of the details must be lifted out because they're hurtful, they're private. They're, and I think there is a big difference between the personal and the private. The private must remain so. The personal, for me, that's open season. Did you get lawyered very heavily? That yeah, that's right. They read everything. And, and, and do you feel that your work is different for that attention? Would it have been a different book if you'd written the book that, you, that was unadulterated? Um. I think so. Uh, when I started this project, it was very different because I, I, I wasn't aware of any attention. I didn't think that anyone would read it. And I w- was much more open and honest and and, um, and careless, you know. And then I sent the manuscript out and then I realized, okay, this is, this is uh, dangerous. And then I became much more careful during the process. But I think it's the essence of the book is still, you know, present and it's it's really is about yeah not hurting uh not going there uh, and it's it's like there was an impression of this book that it was you know a kind of a revenge or a kind of hatred into it or because of my father and 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 the way I, I describe him but it isn't it is a try really just try to understand what happened and 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 how this you know catastrophe hap- why that happened to him and it's um I think the reader can sense that, but the relatives can't sense that. You know, they're too close and they can't see it. And really, everybody you write about are too close. They can't really see see it. So my brother is very relieved. Every time I write about something, you know, very distant, he goes, oh, this is good. But every time it comes close to me, can't, you know, he can't see it. If it's good, if it's bad, it's literature, if it's life, what, what it is. Because he's, he's so emotionally involved. And everybody around, if you write about, you know, persons everybody reacts in that way emotionally and blindly but things get better with time you know I I think particularly in the case of your work it's so digested by the time it's on the page that it's so yes it's raw but it is such a brave journey to the interior and so as the writer I'm always quite surprised that people sort of take my 
books on, on a very face value because what it ignores is the journey to the interior and the really tough work that it requires for you to go deeper and deeper and deeper down to what is bedrock. And, you know, I think particularly in the States, we've had this rash of sort of memoirs that are very much really confessionals that feel to me like something that would be much better taken to your therapist. And I think that that's two separate things. I think that you do your your work with your therapist or your meditation or whatever you need to do to sort of process your life and what you want to leave on the page is something that is bigger than that because honestly even trauma can be quite mundane if it's somebody else's trauma it it, it, there's something almost quite boring about it and also it it leaves a taste of voyeurism on the page and I think the trick to write something that as Carl's done that is that you've, we all cringe because we all know we are inside the body of an 18-year-old boy who is so full of lust and we can picture ourselves there. Now that's transcendence. And that, I think, is what a book is aiming for. Guardian listeners get the latest news, but they can also create it. With our sponsor Squarespace, you can easily create an elegant website for your personal brand, online store, business, personal portfolio, or blog. Whoever you are, Squarespace's simple tools and elegant designs make your ideas newsworthy and accessible to any audience. Try it at squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. And now to Ruth Skur. Or is it John Aubrey? Hard to tell in this ingeniously conceived biography, which is titled John Aubrey, My Own Life, and appears to be written in his own words. Anno 1660, May. The Convention has proclaimed Charles II the rightful king since the execution of his father on 30th of January 1649. As the morning grows lighter and lighter and more glorious until it is perfect day, so now does the joy of the people. Maypoles, which were banned in hypocritical times, have been set up again at crossroads. At the Strand, near Drury Lane, the tallest maypole ever seen was erected with help from seamen. 29th of August. On this day, the Parliament passed an act of free and general pardon, indemnity and oblivion, asking the King to pardon everyone involved in the death of his father except those who officiated at his execution. The interregnum will be legally forgot. Blind Mr Milton will be released from prison. He was arrested recently, and there have been burnings of his books. Anno 1661, 30th of January. On this day, the twelfth anniversary of the execution of the late King, the exhumed bodies of Oliver Cromwell, Henry Ireton and John Bradshaw were hanged on the gallows at Tyburn Hill. Henry Ireton was Cromwell's son-in-law. He died of fever in 1651. John Bradshaw was president of the court that condemned Charles I to death, and it was he who read the sentence against the King. He died in 1659. My servant saw the decomposed bodies taken down and buried under the gallows. Only Cromwell's body was wrapped in cerecloth. Ireton's hands were rotted off, but his body was not putrefied. Worms ran up and down the holes in Bradshaw's body too. Ruth, 
people coming to this podcast who were not aware of what this book is might well think that this is actually John Aubrey writing. But it's not John Aubrey writing, is it? You've done an extraordinary job of impersonating him while also writing his biography. Um, I don't see it as an impersonation because what I've actually done is to take as many of his own words as possible, uh, pulling them together from his manuscripts, his letters, and I've erected around them a scaffolding of my own words so that the reader can follow the text as a, a continuous experience. So it's it's neither Aubrey nor me. I see it as a, as a collaboration between the two of us. Why have you decided to do this? Um, the, the problem um, in writing a biography of Aubrey um, was that he gets crowded out of his own life. Um, he's someone who lived through fascinating times and he knew fascinating people like Hooke, Boyle, the early scientists, William Harvey, who discovered the circulation of blood, politicians of the age. And for a very long time, people have been interested in what you can see through Aubrey. And even in the best old biography of him by Anthony Pohl, he gets pushed to one side. So Pohl's biography was called John Aubrey and His Friends. And the friends keep on coming to the, to the front and, and, and dominating the narrative. So I wanted to find a way to foreground Aubrey. And um, I realised that one of the reasons we have such a strong sense of Pepys and Evelyn is they left us their diaries. Aubrey, if he kept a diary, it hasn't survived. We don't have that. So I wanted to try and recreate a diary for him because no one gets crowded out of their own diary. You mentioned Pepys, and of course Pepys is the person who we think of uh, in relation to these momentous events, the Great Fire of London, the Restoration, the Civil War. What is Aubrey's particular importance I think through Aubrey, we see those events and the important events of the time, the important people of the time, in a more intimate way. He's much less successful than Pepys. He's much less established. And so through him, we see a much more intimate and personal account of those events and people. I think he, he isn't speaking for the establishment. Um, he's, he's not a man in a hurry or, or a man of wealth. He's somebody who is trying to collect all the tiny details that he thinks other people will fail to record or fail to write down because he has the historical vision to know that in the future, posterity, our times, will be grateful for those tiny details. You describe him as the inventor of modern life writing. To what extent is this modern life writing? I think the the intimacy, the understanding of a life as being composed of the minutiae, the tiny details that make your life distinctively your own. I think in that regard, he was a pioneer of the biographical genre that now we've developed in many, many different directions since him. But we still hope from our biographies to have a real sense of what a person was actually like. In Aubrey's time, the convention was for panegyrics, for praise of of, of great men and he said you know pox take your orators they spoil lives and histories because they fail to record those personal intimate distinctive details which actually compose our lives 
You say that he just didn't keep a diary. Therefore, we don't know as much about his intimate life. Yet you have him here. You show him being lovelorn. You show there are various. There is there are intimacies in this. How did you find those, and how true are they? So Aubrey wrote a, a vast number of unpublished manuscripts, and lots of them are his collections from his travels. And if you look very carefully, you can sometimes see him making comments of a more personal nature alongside those searches after the antiquities that that he defines himself by. And he also had the, although he was a relatively chaotic person who didn't actually bring any of, or only one of his works into print in his lifetime, he was a friend of Alias Ashmole's and he was able to put his collections into the Ashmolean Museum, which is why we have them. And among them, there are over 800 letters to and from Aubrey, lots of them um, about intellectual pursuits, scientific experiments. But again, if you read carefully, you can find enough uh, of the personal um, remarks and I've tried to pull all of them together and put them into the diary form. So tell us about his personal life. So Aubrey was born a gentleman in Wiltshire and he went to Oxford as an undergraduate. He was there um, during the Civil War, a very dramatic time to be in Oxford. And whilst he was there, he became fascinated by the very early scientific experiments that were starting in Oxford before the Civil War. After the Restoration, he kept up those friendships. He was a very early member of the Royal Society. And friendship is is a, a very, very central part of Aubrey's life, this uh, network of what he calls his ingenious acquaintance, his ingenious friends. He's so excited by their discoveries and modestly hoping to play a role in them. In his um, even more personal life beyond friendship, his love life, he is very unlucky. These passing remarks to women he's either fallen in love with upon first sight who then promptly die or disappear or marry somebody else. At one point, he does try to contract a marriage which he thinks will rescue his finances. He seems to separate love from marriage in a very distinctive way. And that is a complete disaster because the woman he is contracted to marry ends up suing him for a breach of contract before they even get married. And then he's pursued through the courts and that adds to the financial difficulties that he had been experiencing ever since his father died and left him a great deal of debt. One of the fascinating things that comes out of this book is that he stands at the end of an age of magic and the beginning of an age of reason and they're sort of all mixed up and particularly as he gets older he invokes quite a lot of what we would think of mumbo jumbo. Um, Would you just give us an example of this? Um, That's absolutely right. Um, The distinction between early science and magic is not well established in his era. And he certainly moves um, between those that what we would think of as very distinct worlds. So... Here's an extract from the only book he published, his Miscellanies, which the 18th century thought was a mad book and which didn't do his reputation any favours in the next century. So in my chapter on magic, I have included some spells. To cure the thrush. There is a certain piece in the beef called the mouse piece, 
which, given to the child or party so affected to eat, does certainly cure the thrush. An experienced midwife told me this. Another to cure thrush. Take a living frog and hold it in a cloth so that it does not go down the child's mouth. Put the head of the frog into the child's mouth until it is dead. Then take another frog and do the same. To cure the toothache. Take a new nail and make the gum bleed with it, then drive it into an oak. This cured William Neal, Sir William Neal's son, a very stout gentleman, when he was almost mad with pain and minded to pistol himself. And what this makes one aware of is the sleight of hand that's involved with rendering a consciousness which is in some ways quite different to ours, modern, without domesticating it to such an extent that, you know, it just feels like our next-door neighbour. Yes, absolutely. So there's that reaching out to a, a very, very different time, a very different sensibility, but finding a way to make that accessible to contemporary readers. So there's always that balance, and I've certainly tried to be respectful of both those demands. You're a Cambridge academic, and this is a very bold stylistic decision to write a biography in this style. It is not a cradle-to-grave, he did this, he did that Mm. biography. Mm. What made you decide to do it like this? I was being very close to the material and I wanted to find a way to really honour Aubrey and to show him in as a vivid light as possible. I've never been a fan of the Cradle to Grave biography, but I did want to find a form that would honour the material to try and get as close to the sensibility behind the life as I possibly could. Who do you think your ideal reader for this is? I hope that all the people who have in the past come across Brief Lives will love this book and recognise what it does for the man behind the Brief Lives. And I hope people who've never heard of the Brief Lives will pick up this book and become intrigued and that it will lead them through Aubrey back to his Brief Lives. So I think because Aubrey's interests were so diverse and he is interested in science, in literature, in architecture, in the history of clothing, the history of words. I hope that there will be a very broad engagement. John Fowles, the novelist, was very, very interested in Aubrey and in fact was partly responsible for the first publication of the Monumenta Britannica, which was Aubrey's original survey of, of Avery, expanded in typical Aubrey style to become... A- an un- Avery, that's the stone circle. The stone circle, to, to become an unmanageable manuscript that could never be published but John Fowles said when he was working on that that he thought with Aubrey you got closer to what it was actually like to be alive in the 17th century with all of its poetries and dreams and problems and hopes than with anybody else so I hope that people who are fascinated by going back into the past will be able to engage with that. And that's all we have time for today. My thanks to Carlo Vignusgaard, Alexandra Fuller and Ruth Skur. Dancing in the Dark and Leaving Before the Rains Come are both published by Harville Secker. John Aubrey, My Own Life is out now from Chateau and Windus. If you have something you'd like us to explore or people you'd like to hear about, please tell us about them. You can leave comments on our podcast page. That's at theguardian.com slash books or tweet us at Guardian Books. 
I'm Claire Armistead. The producer is Eva Krishak. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com/audio.